Well, our first speaker this morning is Pastor Stephen Baker, who is pastor here at Clearnote Church in Bloomington. Um, he is the dean of the Pastors College, and he's also very involved in the work of starting the Athanasius College. He has six children, married to Sebra, and um, just a quick personal testimony. When I first arrived at this church, it was very difficult to keep me here. And through the work of our pastors, Tim, Max, and Stephen, and the work of the Holy Spirit, I stayed, and my heart was changed. But Stephen invested many, many hours with me, as he has some of you. And, and because of that, I ended up in the pastor's college. And so I'm very thankful for him, and, and I commend his ministry to you. So let's, let's pray for him. Father, we, we thank you again for this time that is set aside to hear your word preached to us. And Father, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would rest upon your preacher and upon us so that our hearts may be changed. And Father, we do thank you for Stephen and his work, and I pray that you would bless him in it and that you would give him boldness now as he comes before us and, and feeds us from your word. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Please turn to Second Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8 this morning. I'm glad I've got you when the coffee is uh, coursing through the veins. 2 Timothy 4, 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that your word would come, that your Holy Spirit would come. Use this, your word. Pierce us, strengthen us, reprove, rebuke, and exhort us. Help us, Lord, to do the work that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This passage of Scripture is a solemn 
and sober declaration of your work as a preacher. Who can read this charge in verse 1 and not tremble? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. And yet we don't tremble. We step into the pulpit lightly. We think, I've got this under control. I can pull this off. We do not feel the weight of judgment. We do not feel the weight of God. We do not feel the glory of Christ and the majesty of his kingdom. Oh, but we do feel weight, don't we? We step into the pulpit and we feel the weight of the opinions of men. We're worried about our reputation. We intensely feel both the smiles and the frowns of men. We wonder if they'll like it. We wonder if they'll think we're hip or relevant or deep. And so we fear men in the pulpit, but we do not fear God. But this passage is calculated by the Holy Spirit to make us tremble in the pulpit, not before men, but before God. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Feel the weight of that. Because, brothers, God Almighty killed his only begotten Son for the life of his church. He will not let us go unpunished if we harm his sheep. He has redeemed precious souls at great price. What will happen to us if these souls, through our neglect, are left to the wolves? Remember James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So what must we do? In light of the presence of God, in light of the judgment of God, in light of the kingdom of God, preach the word. Brothers, this is your work. This is your solemn duty. What does it mean to preach the word? Well, here's what it does not mean. He did not say, preach about the word. He did not say, lecture the word. He did not even say, teach the word. He said, preach. And so what is preaching? The word preach means herald or proclaim. Preaching assumes and requires force and gravity and authority, authority that must be obeyed. What does a herald sound like? Uh, please consider with me the text uh, before us uh, today. Or, the Apostle Paul here uses an interesting phrase that has its origins in the post-captivity milieu of the Judean populace. Or, I just, I just, I just want to share with you something that I discovered in my study this week. Maybe you could come along with me as we... Or, 
I'm no different than you. Uh, what I'm saying, of course, applies to me too. Remember, whenever I point a finger at you, I have three fingers pointing back at me. What? Is any of that heralding? Is any of that preaching? Where is the force? Where is the gravity? Where is the authority? It's gone. But you know that that's exactly how we preach today. We wonder and we share and we lecture. Seldom do we proclaim, which means seldom do we preach. This is a big deal, brothers. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and by and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Not your opinions, not the fads, not the silly tales, not popular notions. Preach the word. Brothers, this is a very big deal. What does it mean to preach the word? To preach means to proclaim and herald. To preach the word means to proclaim and herald the word. Remember, it does not mean preach about the word. Preaching is not an observation about the word. Preaching is not a scientific dissection of the word. Preaching is not a lecture. A lecturer stands apart from his topic and his audience. A lecturer talks about... A lecturer uses words like it and he and they. A lecturer speaks in the past tense. God said to them that they had sinned. But not a preacher. A preacher talks to, not about. A preacher uses words like you. A preacher speaks in the present and the future tenses. God is saying to you that you are sinning. A lecturer holds the word out here and points out interesting things about it. Interesting things. But a preacher takes the word and throws it at the people. He preaches it, the word. Preach the word is just like saying, throw the spear. It's the same construction. You don't throw about the spear. You throw the spear. It is active. It is powerful. It's almost violent. It is certainly authoritative. You must preach with vehemence and force. Calvin said, you must give vigor and power to the word of God. And another thing, he does not say, preach a sermon. He says, preach the word. A sermon cannot be a mere explanation of scripture. It cannot be simply a pointer to truth that exists out there. A sermon, in a very real sense, is 
the word of God. When you truthfully and rightly preach the word of God, your sermon is the word of God. This is exactly what John Calvin taught about preaching. Now, I get the feeling that you're going to hear a lot about John Calvin this today. You heard yesterday, when David, you're going to hear a lot from me. I do not apologize for this. John Calvin was not a disembodied brain. He was a pastor and a preacher. And I've been reading a lot about the preaching of John Calvin and of the preaching of John Calvin. And you men are pastors or your students or your elders, and so you can handle this. I'm going to read a lot of stuff to you, but I expect that you'll be able to stay awake. But listen to what Calvin says, a sermon on 1 Timothy 3, 2. The phrase, an elder must be able to teach. Here's what he says. St. Paul does not mean that one should just make a parade here or that a man should show off so that everyone applauds him and says, oh, well spoken. Oh, what a breadth of learning. Oh, what a subtle mind. All that is beside the point. When a man has climbed into the pulpit, is it so that he may be seen from afar and that he may be preeminent? Not at all. It is that God may speak to us by the mouth of a man. And he does us that favor of presenting himself here and wishes a mortal man to be his messenger. Calvin said, the pulpit is the throne of God from, where, from whence he wills to govern our souls. The pulpit, the throne of God. Again, Calvin said, when a man is the envoy, the ambassador of his prince, and has complete authority to do what is commanded to his charge, he will, so to say, borrow his prince's name. He will say, we are doing this. We instruct. We have commanded. We want that done. Now, when he speaks like this, he is not intending to take anything from his master. So it is with God's servants. They know that God has ordained them as instruments and that he employs them in his service in such a way that they do nothing by their own power. It is the master who leads them. It is said that ministers are sent to enlighten the blind, to deliver the captives, to forgive sins, to convert hearts. What? These are things which belong to God alone. For there is nothing more properly his own than to pardon sins. He also reserves to himself the converting of the heart. Now, nevertheless, it is the case that he imparts all those, these qualifications to those whom he appoints to convey his word and declares to them that he does not separate himself from them, but rather shows that he uses them as his hands and his instruments. That is what you are if you're a preacher. The hands and the instrument of God himself. He goes on. So let us know that it is to our great profit that we are shown that when God's ministers speak, they are not just uttering a fleeting sound, but that its accomplishment is added to it. Yes, and that our salvation is built up to that extent. Do we come to the sermon? Is the grace of God presented to us? Are we shown how Jesus Christ has made satisfaction for us to withdraw us from the curse in which we were? When all that is certified to us, in the preaching, it is as good as if the thing itself were present with us. 
The reason? When God sends his messengers to announce his will to us, he at the same time gives such power that the effect is joined with the word. The preaching produces the effect that God ordains. Calvin says in another sermon, Now, we see how God wishes his word to be received in such humility when he sends men to announce what he commands them. As if he were in the midst of us. The preaching is as if he were in the midst of us. So the teaching which is put forward in the name of God ought to be as authoritative as if all the angels of heaven descended to us. As if God himself were manifesting his majesty before our eyes. It is true that when men speak, we must weigh their words carefully, he says. For if one were willing to receive everything that was put forward, there would be no distinction between liars and false prophets who seduce men's souls and the true messengers of God. But when we have a sure witness that what is brought to us proceeds from God, as if we are shown by Holy Scripture that nothing is being made up, but that the preacher is keeping to the pure simplicity of the law and the gospel, whoever is stubborn is certainly not making war against a creature, but manifestly resists God who wishes to be heard speaking in this way by men and making use of them as his instruments. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God, carries the authority of God. He's right. Now how can that be? Well, only by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Or 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. He's talking about the preaching. Now, think about this. How will our people receive that kind of preaching? Well, they'll call it authoritarianism. But remember, authority is not authoritarianism. If you're, in fact, preaching the word of God faithfully and accurately, you stand as the herald of God. You represent God, not yourself. The weight of the proclamation depends on the one who sent you. If this is God's word, then of course it has authority. They will call you harsh and mean and a bully. That is why the Apostle Paul tells us here in verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That does not mean be ready to preach even if you haven't prepared a sermon. You know, always have something in your pocket that you could pull out in case someone happens to ask you to preach a sermon. That's not what it means. It means be ready to preach even when it isn't popular to preach. Be ready to preach even when you'll be hated for it. You must be eager to preach. Again, Calvin says on this phrase, be ready in season and out of season, he says this, for being by nature, he's talking about pastors, he's talking about you and me, listen to what he says, for being by nature exceedingly effeminate or slothful, we're pansies and we're lazy. 
We easily yield to the slightest opposition. And sometimes we gladly seek apologies for our slothfulness. We make excuses for it. Let us now consider how many arts Satan employs to stop our course and how slow to follow and how soon wearied are those who are called the preachers. How how slow to follow, how soon wearied are those who are called. Consequently, the gospel will not long maintain its place if pastors do not urge it earnestly, in season and out of season, when it's popular, when it's hated. People will hate you if you preach the word with authority. So what do we need? We need courage. Calvin, they that intend to serve God faithfully and proclaim his word will never lack enemies to make war against them. The man who serves God and bearing his word faithfully will never have peace, nor go without stings and unmolested, nor be without many enemies. That's exactly what David was saying last night. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like for you to enter the pulpit feeling the weight of God, feeling the weight of God's judgment, feeling the weight of God's authority, preaching the word of God? What's it look like for you to bear the word as an ambassador of God? He tells us in verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now what is this? This is intense and personal and direct application. How can a reproof be theoretical? How can you possibly reprove if it's never personal? How can a rebuke be impersonal? How can a lecture be exhortation? God commands us to apply the word to real, particular flesh and blood people, the people who are actually sitting in front of us. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. This is intense. Your work in the pulpit is to be intense. This is what it means to preach the word. He's not talking about something else now. What it means to preach the word is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And if there's nothing personal in your preaching, if you never reprove anyone, if you never rebuke anyone, if you never exhort anyone, then you never preach. And Paul is not talking about what we do in private, in the counseling room. He's talking about what we do publicly in the pulpit. Some of us are willing to reprove and rebuke and exhort in private, you know, where we can moderate and modulate and be delicate and careful and make sure that we haven't actually offended the person who's sitting in front of us. But God commands us to reprove and rebuke and exhort in our preaching. These words assume and require power and force and intensity. They require what Calvin calls increased vehemence of reproofs and threatenings. Now, why do our people need this kind of preaching? Because all of us, 
and our people are lazy and sluggish and hard-hearted, and our people need to wake up. Will people like that? Do you like that? Here's what Calvin says people will say when you preach with force and strength. He says people will say, whoa, that is too hard to be born. You ought not to go on like that. (coughs) How many of you preachers have ever heard that before? He says, those who cannot bear to be reproved had better look for another schoolmaster than God. There are many who will not stand it. What? Is this the way you teach? Ho, we want to be won by sweetness. You do? Then go and teach God his lessons. These are sensitive folk who cannot bear to have a single reproof to be offered to them. And why? Ho, we want to be taught in another style. Well then, go to the devil's school. He will flatter you enough and destroy you. That's Calvin. Sound like a disembodied brain to you? Reprove, rebuke, exhort. This assumes and requires application. But application has fallen on on hard times today. Our people don't want application, and our preachers don't want to give it. And many of us have made that a high-sounding principle. Marco Rubio moment there. Application has almost died in the name of very spiritual-sounding methods of preaching, like Christ-centered preaching, or gospel-centered preaching, or redemptive historical preaching, or two-kingdom theology, or even, simply, expository preaching. Application has died at the hands of all of those things. I want to read to you something from John MacArthur's book, Rediscovering Expository Preaching. This is the epilogue to John MacArthur's book, Rediscovering Expository Preaching, written by Lance Quinn, one of the men out there in California. He says this, Expositors who trust implicitly in the power and sufficiency of God's word and believe in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit take a unique approach to preaching. Their primary concern is to clarify the meaning of the text. Finding unforgettable illustrations and providing catchy application formulas are a little lower on the list. There seems to be enough of that kind of preaching today, and most of it is shallow and insipid. Instead, the true expositor depends on the sheer power of the biblical text itself. When he has done all he can to ensure a text is properly understood in its context, the faithful expositor has the freedom to provide more specific ways for his hearers to apply for his hearers to apply the text, not for him. The real work of applying one sermon from the ancient text of Scripture to many hearers in a contemporary context is ultimately the purview of the Holy Spirit. No preacher can fulfill that role. He can't even come close. How could any human preacher possibly apply a biblical passage to the multitude or the multiple and diverse situations of each member of a congregation? Only the Holy Spirit, the divine author of Scripture, and the one who knows each and every human heart is able to take his word and bring true conviction and lasting change to individual hearts in specific situations. 
Therefore, armed with the knowledge that God's word is powerful and the Holy Spirit is at work, your preacher's main task is to make the biblical passage plain and clear. John Leith, he says, finds that principle at work in the effective preaching of John Calvin. Now, this is really funny. Calvin, quote, Calvin sought to make the biblical message clear so that under the power of the Holy Spirit it could make hearers alive to God's presence. So he's quoting John Calvin against force, vehemence, application, rebuke. That's what he's doing. Just, it's all just about making the text clear. Just make it clear. And he goes on. So is your pastor absolved of his responsibility to work at sermon application? No, not at all. But your pastor labors under limitations the Holy Spirit doesn't have. Your pastor is doing well when he rightly divides the word of truth and communicates it in a way that's clear and plain. Look ultimately to the Spirit, not to your pastor, to apply the sermons you hear. Now, this is, let me read something else to you. This is John MacArthur himself answering a question in a, in a live form. There's a video of this online. Answering the charge that he doesn't apply the scriptures in his teaching. And here's what he says. <clears throat> so this is a, man, a transcript of, of what he said, not what he wrote. Now let me tell you what happens when you preach effectively. You do explanation. In other words, you explain the meaning of the scripture, okay? The explanation carries with it implication. In other words, there are implications built into this, and into this truth that impact us. You add to that exhortation. And I've said things tonight to exhort you to follow what is implied by the text. Now, when you deal with the text and the armor of God, like tonight, all I can do is explain it. That's all it does. There aren't any applications in that text. It doesn't say, and here's how you do this if you're 32 years old and you live in North Hollywood. Here's how you do this the next time you go to the mall. Here's how you do this when you go to your car and you're driving in a traffic jam. It doesn't tell you that. And if I made my message mostly a whole lot of those little illustrations, I would be missing 90% of you who don't live in that experience. It's not for me to do that. Application belongs to the Spirit of God. All I'm interested in is explanation and its implications. And the power comes in the implication and in the Spirit of God, as the Spirit of God takes the implications of what I've said tonight, all these things I've said. I don't need to say all kinds of little scenarios to you and paint all kinds of little individual circumstances. All I need you to know is this is what the Word of God says, and the implications are powerfully brought to bear with authority on your life, and I exhort you to respond to those implications. It's the Spirit's work to drive those implications into direct and personal application. He says, <clears throat> You already have a commitment to the truthfulness of Scripture. All I want you to understand is what it means. He assumes that his hearers all have a commitment to the truthfulness of Scripture, and all he has to do is just tell them what it means. It's easy. And in the meaning expanded beyond the given text to other texts so that you build all the theological implications, I leave you with the implications and an exhortation to be obedient, and I leave the application to the Spirit. He finishes like this. Now, I'm not trying to defend myself, but I was at a pastor's conference in the Midwest a few weeks ago, and they were asking me, why don't you ever give any application? And I had to explain myself that that's not my job.
Now, what's the problem with that? Where's the rebuke? Where's the reproof? He makes a caricature of application. He calls it a whole lot of those little illustrations. He calls it all kinds of little scenarios and all kinds of little individual circumstances. Well, fine, if that's what you mean by application. Yeah, who needs it? But do you hear the high-sounding principle here? The primary concern of a good preacher is to clarify the meaning of the text. The true expositor depends on the sheer power of the biblical text itself. Your preacher's main task is to make the biblical passage plain and clear. Your pastor is doing well when he rightly divides the word of truth and communicates it in a way that's clear and plain. The real work of applying one sermon from the ancient text of Scripture to many hearers is in a contemporary context, is ultimately the purview of the Holy Spirit. Application belongs to the Spirit of God. All I'm interested in is explanation and its implications. It sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? It sounds very solid. But really? That's what Paul meant when he said, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, Really? That's what he meant? He just meant explain the text? He just meant clarify the meaning of the text? No, you are not preaching at all if all you do is explain the meaning of the text. That is a lecture, it's not a sermon. A sermon has an edge, it has an attack, it has a point, something sharp that pierces and gets work done. That is not just the purview of the Holy Spirit. Of course, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to preach, but you also need the power of the Holy Spirit to reprove and rebuke and exhort. But if you don't do it, it won't get done. The Holy Spirit does not reprove and rebuke and exhort for you. He commands you to do it. He commands you to come to the pulpit with the sins of your people in the front of your mind. He commands you to bring the meaning of the text into direct contact with the people. That is what it means to apply the Bible. It means the same kind of thing as applying paint to a wall or applying pressure to a wound. One thing comes into direct contact with another thing and does something. That's what apply means. In preaching, the truth of Scripture comes into direct contact with the sins and the fears and the weaknesses of real people, and it does something. And no, it's not automatic. If that just automatically happened when we simply explained the text... If, if that just automatic, all you have to do is just explain the text, and it just automatically happens, then this passage is gibberish. It's nonsense. Because these are commands. And if it just happens automatically, then these commands are meaningless. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Now, there are others who essentially deny this element of preaching. In the Reformed world, there's a school of preaching called redemptive historical preaching. They say that the main point of every sermon should be the work of Christ and the gospel. They call this Christ-centered preaching or gospel-centered preaching. They say that 
We need to focus on the indicatives of Scripture, the statements of fact about what Christ has done. The problem is they never really ever get to the imperatives, the commands of Scripture. They have a, a boogeyman called moralistic preaching that supposedly ignores the gospel and the work of Christ and focuses on what we need to do. And in their zeal to preserve the gospel, they ignore the commands of Scripture. And they claim the only proper use of the Old Testament, for example, is to point to the work of Jesus Christ. They claim that preachers are wrong for using the Old Testament stories as examples for Christians. No, 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 they say, that's moralism. Charles Dennison is one of the writers in a journal called Kerux, a journal of biblical theological preaching. And here's what he writes. This is kind of the, the center of this in America. Here's what he says. He says, Good preaching is God-centered, not man-centered. Good preaching is Christ-centered, not morality or behavior-centered. Good preaching does not make the text meaningful for us in our contemporary situation. Rather, good preaching makes us and our contemporary situation meaningful in the text. In other words, good preaching doesn't pull the word into our world as if the word were deficient in itself and in need of our applicatory skills. Instead, good preaching testifies and declares to us that we have been pulled into the word, which has its own marvelous sufficiency. Now, can someone please explain what in the world that means? What is that supposed to mean? The problem with that redemptive historical preaching that forbids applying the scripture is this, for example, 1 Corinthians 10. For I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples to us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who, th who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Boy, Paul blew it. What moralism. What a misuse of the Old Testament. John Owen was right to say Old Testament examples are New Testament instructions. That's right. Where does redemptive historical or Christ-centered preaching tend to lead? It tends to lead to preaching that is empty of reproof and rebuke and, and exhortation. But this is nothing new. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his lectures on preaching in that book, uh, Preachers, Preaching and Preachers, which you should all read if you haven't read, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there are men who do not exhort at all. They've given their brilliant intellectual disquisition or exposition, and it's left at that. There is nothing to move anyone to tears or to action, no emotion, no feeling, no exhortation, 
All this is obviously wrong. It's what he says in that book frequently, I abominate that. (laughs) Calvin, again, says this, it's not enough to preach what is good and useful. For if men were well disposed and received what God set before them and were so teachable that they could put their minds and hearts into line with it, to subject themselves to what is good, it would be enough to have said, this is what God declares to us. This is exactly what John MacArthur just told you was good preaching. Just, they already are inclined to just, oh yeah, just lay it out there. Calvin says, if that were true, then yeah, maybe. But since men are malicious, are ungrateful, are perverse, ask only for lies in place of the truth, readily go astray, and after they have known God, turn again and distance themselves from him. For this reason it is necessary for us to be held, as it were, forcibly, and for God, having faithfully taught us, to exhort us to persist in obedience to his word. And moreover, let us bear being admonished when the preacher has declared to us what is good and exhorts us to keep it. And again, when we have been warned, if we are reproved, even forcibly, and the preacher uses reproofs which are harsh to us, let us know that it's to our profit. You see, the biblical idea of preaching is completely foreign to us. I come from a background where a pastor once said in the general assembly of the churches, to all the pastors and elders gathered together, preaching, on preaching, right? This is what he said, quote, bottom line, preach in such a way that if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, at least you had a good lecture. And so what is almost guaranteed in those pulpits? Holy Spirit will never show up. Well, enough of all of that. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. The sharpness of your reproof and rebuke must be moderated by gentleness. Calvin says, nothing is more difficult than to set a limit to our zeal when we have once become warm. Talking to pastors here. (laughs) Now when we are carried away by impatience or Exertions are altogether fruitless. Our harshness not only exposes us to ridicule, but also irritates the minds of the people. Besides, keen, sharp, and violent men are generally unable to endure the obstinacy of those with whom they are brought into intercourse and cannot submit to many annoyances and insults, which nevertheless must be digested (laughs) if we are desirous to be useful digest the obstinacy of the people, the annoyances, the insults. Let severity be therefore mingled with this seasoning of gentleness, that it may be known to proceed from a peaceful heart. Now, why? Why the solemn charge? Why the weight of God's judgment? Why the command to herald with authority? Why the command to reprove, rebuke, and exhort? In our preaching, why the warning to preach in season and out of season when it's popular and when it's hated? Verse 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. 
Brothers, obviously this time is now. America has heaped up for herself teachers that tell her what she wants to hear. We do not have patience for healthful, sound doctrine. We want to have our ears tickled, and I'm not just talking about the masses at Joel Osteen's church. I'm talking about us and our people. Our people fill their lungs with this hatred of true preaching. They constantly suck it in. Every pastor and every elder has to constantly fight this in our people. It's all great when they stand before you in the congregation and they vow to submit to the teaching and to the discipline of the church. But what happens when they don't like the teaching? What happens when they don't like the discipline? The reproof. One last quote from Calvin. Calvin says, As there is an unsatiable longing for those things which are unprofitable and destructive, an unquenchable longing for what's unprofitable and destructive, so the world seeks on all sides and without end all the methods that it can contrive and imagine for destroying itself. And the devil has always at hand a sufficiently large number of such teachers as the world desires to have. They're all over the place. There has always been a plentiful harvest of wicked men, as there is in the present day, and therefore Satan never has any lack of ministers to deceive men, as he never has any lack of the means of deceiving. Accordingly, that false teachers frequently abound and that they sometimes multiply like a nest of hornets should be ascribed by us to the righteous vengeance of God. It's the judgment of God. Be careful, brothers. Be diligent. Keep preaching. Even when they hate you for it, keep reproving. Even when they call you a cult, Keep rebuking even when they leave your church. Keep exhorting even when they run from you with their fingers in their ears. You have a solemn charge. Judgment is coming. Christ the King is coming. Preach the word. And what does all this require from us? Verse 5, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Brothers, God has given us work to do. He has given you work to do. It is wonderful work. He has given you the promise of power by the Holy Spirit. He has given you a sharp, double-edged sword. He has given you authority. He has given you weapons that are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. He has given you the word of God. Preach it. Don't let anyone stop you. Don't let any fad stop you. Don't let any book stop you. Don't let your own fear stop you. Like, just like Timothy, this weight has fallen on your shoulders. What will we say when we are done? Here's what the Apostle Paul said. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all the preachers who have loved his appearing.
have carried that weight into the pulpit and have done what they're told to do. You old men, you older men, sorry, don't give up. Don't get tired. You young men, don't be lazy. Don't be afraid. Preach the word. So that you can say what Paul said. I'm done. I did it. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we pray that you would strengthen us. We are weak and sinful, wicked men. We are, in fact, effeminate and lazy, looking for any opportunity to to dodge the weight of responsibility and the weight of God, the weight of judgment, the weight of the word. We confess this to you. And we pray, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Work in us. Work in us in such a way that your people, the churches, your people, your sheep, are protected, provided for, kept from evil, encouraged, filled with hope and faith. Lord, make us faithful to this work. I pray in Christ's name, amen.